that we met were just in time. We have stumbled into a major crime. They got the girl off. Now that's not nice. I think he is the subject of a sacrifice. Buddy, we're putting this party on ice. But first you know we really ought to read them their rights. Read them their rights. Read them their rights. Well, I'm here tonight to rap about your rights. Because right now you're in trouble. Don't have to say nothing at all. Y'all got to call them. You better make them all the devil. Hello, welcome to T Hanks for the Memories. I'm your host, Darren. Today we are going to be talking about Dragnet. Released on the 26th of June 1987, it was a success at the box office, a mild one, made three times its budget. Um, Tom is not getting top villain. Uh, this is a project that um, was completely from Dan Aykroyd's mind. He apparently had spent a few years trying to get this made. He was a big fan of the TV series. Based on the original TV series, which ran from 1951 to 1959, but then also um, there were a few TV films, I think, from 67 to 70. Um, and then there were a couple of attempted revivals um, later on. And then obviously this film, uh, which, unlike the TV series, is a comedy. The TV series was not a comedy. Oh, not at <laughs> so... all. Not at all. <laughs> they made a choice. Um, and joining me to talk about this, I have Tim Holsizer. Hello, Tim. Hello. I have Keith Allison. Hello, Keith. Hi, Darren. And I have Lan. Hello, Lan. Hello. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, I mean, usually I ask people if they remember seeing this for the first time. And I think if we go in reverse order, because obviously, uh, I don't think before we did this project, Lan, you had seen this film. No, that's um, not true. That is not true. Oh, had you not? Oh, Okay. I, no, when, I have. Seen, you... I have seen it. Yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> I thought, like, as a kid, I watched a lot of movies on on TV. Um, we, my, my family had hot cable boxes, so we had HBO and and everything growing up. I could watch whatever. Um, and I thought I was like, I probably watched it on HBO as a kid. But then after watching it this week. I almost most definitely did not. I probably watched it on basic cable, like on WPIX or something on a rainy Saturday afternoon, because I really liked this movie as a kid. Uh, and like, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, in the movie, a lot of, um, you know, uh, the stuff we'll get into, I'm sure strippers and the whatnot that I did not remember. And I'm sure that were cut out uh, on the basic cable <laughs> version. So that, I'm sure that's how I watched it. Yeah. I mean, I remember that we, I think we, I think we must've rented this like once because we rented a lot of Tom Hanks stuff when I was younger. And then I think I remember seeing it on TV quite a few times. Um, and I may have even recorded it off TV and watched it a couple more times after that, because um, you know, mostly for the, um, the goat dance, but we can get into that. Uh, Keith, do you recall, you know, watching this as a, a younger child, or is this a more recent film that you're watching? Yeah, this was one. Uh, this is one of the few films of Hanks's '80s era that I was exposed to as a kid. Uh, I think, like Lan, I, I watched a lot of stuff on television, and this was something I remember playing quite often on TV Land uh, when I was growing up. So it was one that would kind of randomly come on uh, that I would sort of catch up with, and it, I think it was probably one of my earliest exposures to Hanks outside of his big like 90s early 2000s run of of Toy Story Forrest Gump sort of projects yeah yeah and Tim um this is actually one of the very very few Tom Hanks pictures I had not seen uh that's that's why I was excited to sign up for it actually on the podcast sign up sheet um, I don't know how it slipped by me. I, I liked Hanks as a kid. Maybe it was because it's the PG-13 uh, rating. My, maybe I wasn't allowed to see it. I don't know. But So now I've seen it. 
for better <laughs> for better or worse. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, what's interesting about this film, obviously, the, just the fact that it is taking like a drama and kind of turning it into a comedy, and like having Dan Aykroyd kind of wrote the script with Alan Zweibel, um, who has written uh, just like t- like for tons of stuff. I mean, he he created its its Gary Shandling show, like. Um, he was a writer on the first few seasons of SNL. <laughs> like he's like you know that's how he met um, Dan Aykroyd. Um, for his sins, he he also wrote North. Um, oh no! <laughs> yeah. So be- because he was also friends with Billy Crystal as well, and you know he's written some stuff for him. Did some like Oscar stuff. Um, yeah. So he's like he's just you know he's been around for such a long time, and uh, I mean he's he's seventy one now, but he's like written a lot of stuff. Uh, he co-wrote the script with Aykroyd. Like, they kind of came up with the idea for what they wanted the script to be. Um, and then they kind of took it around the studios and eventually it ended up at Universal. And uh, Tom Mankiewicz, who's the director and son of Joseph Mankiewicz, um, and the guy who basically, um, as a script doctor, he, like, worked on um, the uh, Superman the movie, like the first Superman film. Um, and the, most of the second one as well, I think. But he was all, because he was friends with Richard Donner, uh, who has recently passed away, um, he was kind of like fired off of Superman 2 <laughs> around the same time as Richard Donner was. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, he's like, he's he's written like a ton of stuff since then. But, he you know, he's mostly known as being like a, like a, a kind of script doctor um, in more recent times. I noticed um, that uh, he had only like directed some TV episodes of Heart to Heart before this movie. Yeah, yeah. This, I mean, this is the weird thing is like, because he's so well known as like, um, you know, a writer. Uh, yeah, it's it's weird that he basically only ever directed two films, and then Dragnet is like his, uh, like his debut, uh, basically, which is such a weird thing because he's so experienced. Um, but yeah, you know, the fact that he was, uh, you know, a writer meant that on set he could like rewrite stuff, and I think that's one of the reasons why they liked him as a director was you know he could do both. He he passed away uh, in two thousand ten. Um, but yeah, he's a, if you listen, I think he's on the commentary for Superman, the movie, there's a commentary where, and he's very kind of frank about like everything that's wrong with that script. Um, he's, it's a really interesting listen to, if you can find it anywhere, because obviously we now live in the era of everything being digital. And so director's commentaries seem to be disappearing, but, uh, yeah. Uh, another interesting thing about this, it reunites, uh, Tom Hanks with Dabney Coleman, uh, who was also in the man with Ron Red Shoe with him. Um, uh, here he's affecting a kind of southern lisp, which is something we can obviously talk about. In the previous, but when I talked about Man with One Red Shoe, I was like, I only knew Dabney Coleman from this sitcom he did, and somebody said the name of a sitcom, and I was like, I don't think that's it. But um, I, now I can tell everyone what it was, and it was a sitcom called Mad Men of the People, um, and it was the highest rated show NBC ever cancelled. Wow! Um, because basically it went on between Seinfeld and Friends and it got like, or Friends and Seinfeld, whichever the order was. And it basically got gigantic ratings. Like it was like the number four show for that season. And they just cancelled it <laughs> because wow. uh, they didn't like it. Yeah, apparently it was affecting ER. It was it was bringing the numbers down on ER a little bit. Like it was getting huge numbers, but not as big as, you know, like they wanted and so even though it was like the fourth highest rated show on NBC that year, they were just like, nope, it's not helping ER out. So let's cancel right. it. It feels like um, they, it was very clear to them. They're like, okay, this is only getting big ratings because it's between Seinfeld and ER. There's nothing that it's bringing to the table itself. So if we move this somewhere else, yeah. it probably wouldn't do that well by itself. And having it is detrimental to our big successes already. So let's nip this in the bud. Huh. 
That makes sense. That makes sense. That's where I recognise Dabney Coleman from, but now I recognise him from the man with Von Chu and Dragnet again. Um, so, yeah, it, like, it's unusual that somebody... I mean, like, imagine somebody taking, like, Law and Order, uh, now, sadly, off the air for the last 11 years, and being like, let's have, like, two comedians <laughs> be like, you know, um, take over the roles of, like, the DA and the main detective, and let's do that as, as a, like, a film. It would be such a bizarre thing to do. Do you think Dragnet, the movie, kind of kicked off that, that thing of, like, turning serious shows into comedic films, like... They ended up doing that with, you know, the the Brady Bunch and Scooby-Doo and all this other stuff. And all that. Yeah. Car, Car 54, Hutch. where are you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> all those. All I don't know. Stuff. I mean, I, I think they came a little bit later because it wasn't until like the mid-90s where that kind of started to pick up steam. But yeah, it is kind of an early prototype because it did make money. I'm surprised, to be honest, that they didn't at least try and get a sequel out of it. Um, because we are talking the decade where both Mannequin and Weekend at Bernie's both got sequels. So <laughs> I, I don't know why in the 80s nobody was like Dragnet 2. But I guess uh, Tom Hanks kind of just wanted to move on with his life and do something else. I think um, we're all better off for it. Yeah. And I think Dan Aykroyd, of course, went back to Ghostbusters after this. So, um, But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, uh, within the film, they kind of link it to the, the, the original series by having Harry Morgan reprise basically the same role that he played in the TV show, which is such like, I don't know, I, it's such a weird kind of choice because Harry, I mean, Harry Morgan, you know, had been like you know he'd obviously done like i don't know how many seasons of, of mash that he did and stuff so he was kind of coming off that um you know and he's playing the character kind of almost like it's in a drama but everybody else is playing their characters like they're in a, a comedy so it just doesn't it it feels completely out of place but i guess they wanted to assure kind of like fans of the original show that you know they were bringing him on and that meant it had like the blessing of you know an original cast member the really funny thing is like he, i went back and watched some of the dragnet tv episodes before this just for fun and he looked like he was retirement age 20 years before in the show <laughs> yeah and so in the 80s he's just wow yeah it's, it's that thing that's recently come to light where it's like norman cheers is meant to be like 32 um, and I think it's just like Harry Morgan has always permanently looked like he was 65. So, um, you know, it didn't it didn't matter the year. Um, much like uh, what's his face in Cocoon. Who is the guy? Oh, Wilford uh, Brimley. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. You know, he's he's always looked like he was in his 70s. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. But yeah. Anyway, let's get into the plot, because, you know, the question is, what the hell is this film all about? <laughs> Um, and we have the voiceover, and obviously Dan Aykroyd is affecting the character of Joe Friday, um, who in this is the nephew of the original Joe Friday. The actor who played him died, I think, four or five years before this film came out, so obviously um, there was never any chance of him appearing in this. Um, and he kind of gives this voiceover about Los Angeles and talking about, you know, there's four million people and, you know, the different types and all colors and creeds and, you know, whichever God and all that kind of stuff uh, before we jump into the title sequence. Um, and what I, what I like about the title sequence is it is literally the most 80s type of title sequence we could ever have um, in that it pans slowly over different parts of like um, the badge, um, but with a I, I don't I don't know what to call it. It's like, like a, a remix. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's, it's a 
it's a re- it's a remix with like quotes that have been sampled on someone's like uh, you know Yamaha, and they just keep pressing random keys, <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it's just it's such a like I mean obviously once we get to the end credits we'll really get into what happens there, but this is like <laughs> such a like with the kind of like orchestral hit sound and it's just like. I, I mean, if you were a, if you were like a you know a fan of the kind of like the fifty show or, or either of the kind of TV movies that followed after that, I can imagine you walking into the cinema in nineteen eighty seven and this title sequence. I mean, obviously the voiceover is something that's carried over from the show, um, but I can imagine you watching this title sequence and just being like, "What is happening to this like TV show that I used to like?" You know, they use the little kind of like um, the dragnet kind of um, I don't know what to call it, like the the kind of musical sting that's from the kind of main title sequence of the original show um, throughout the film, like Ira Newborn kind of just does that all the time. Like literally, <laughs> I mean, at the end it's used as a punchline to just have the, have that kind of little musical sting play. Um, but yeah, it's like, they just, it, I don't know. It's just this entire opening is like this opening title sequence. When it finished, I was like, this is such a weird film <laughs> like that, that they made that choice is such a weird kind of direction. They were like, um, they were like, don't, don't worry. This isn't your daddy's dragnet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, but yeah, the fact that they've got the voiceover, I mean, I don't know how you, I don't know how you feel about the introduction of Los Angeles. It does feel a bit like, you know, I was, I was watching uh, the Cisco and Ebert review of this and it is funny hearing them talk about it because uh, Gene is like very, very much praises Dan Aykroyd's performance, and I think even said he should have got an Oscar nomination for it. But I think they're both. <laughs> what? For, for wow. the listeners, Tim and Lan both just went back in their chairs. <laughs> 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 um, but I think they both were kind of critical in the way it does seem to the ways in which it deviates from the original series and trying to update it for the '80s uh, feel a little bit almost tacked on or a little bit. In, in Congress with uh, the sort of setting that they're kind of going for. So I think there's a little bit of a whiplash in that sense. It didn't really bother me so much, but I don't know that it's a really strong um, first note to, to start on. Yeah, I do like that they go, the names have been changed to protect the innocent, and then they give you like a, a guy's name and they say it's been changed to this woman's name. And I thought that's like, that's a funny gag. I can't remember the names. Yeah, that was like, yeah, like as close as they got to a naked gun kind of joke, I think. Yeah. It's probably the only halfway decent gag in the thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Saying, saying like John Smith has been changed to like, you know, Joan, Joan, you know, um, Joan Jones or something. Like just like a complete, like, just like that kind of, like saying the names have been changed to protect the innocent and then giving it away. That is, that is like a solid joke, um, you know. And we're introduced to... The, like one half of the main plot, which is uh, we see we see these fire engines um, at this kind of like factory and a policeman comes along and says, where's the fire? Because there is no fire. And we see this uh, henchman who I'm going to call Jaws Light because he is kind of a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> like, um, that's I guess that's who he's meant to remind you of. But um, he he basically holds this policeman up and he he says, you know, when. Uh, like there isn't any fire now and then he like you know he he gets like a molotov cocktail and lights it and throws it into like a pile of uh, magazines and he says when you wake up you know tell them that the pagans did this um and that introduces us to i guess the kind of main bad guys but you know we'll find out later on that's not completely correct um you know as bait magazine is being set on fire here and um the pagans are doing it and yeah i, I mean this is this is going to be like the kind of 
the the main kind of plot that is going to be followed by Friday and his new partner, um, which is the kind of the destruction of of various things by pagans. Um, and we'll, I mean, on the they they leave little calling cards, and uh, there's a there's a full stop after every letter in the word pagan. But we'll find out later on what that means exactly. Um, Do you think that um, Mankiewicz brought along that the that actor for the bad guy Muzz from uh, Superman Two or something? That that was my assumption. Yeah, uh, Jack o- he looks familiar. Jack o- I Jack O'Halloran, who plays Non in the uh, the first two Superman films, I did think he reminded me a lot of Richard Keel. To your point, Darren, he definitely yeah. gave me very Jaws aspects. But so it's like, oh, it's it's non everyone's favorite uh, uh, banana in <laughs> yeah. the Krypton Trio. Nice to see you. Yeah, he was kind of subdued as as non in Superman and two, and and then to see him chewing scenery to this extent was was like, wow, this guy has. I'll give him this. He has range, you know. <laughs> Whether it, yeah. it works, but. <laughs> well, I mean, apparently he did actually turn down the role of Jaws in The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, apparently he was offered it and he said no. And, uh, and that's where obviously Richard Keel uh, made his name, basically, didn't I mean, you know, he was, yeah. you know, that's, his entire career was kind of based off that. Um, and then, of course, the revival when he was in Happy Gilmore. Um, but yeah, like, it's weird because obviously the character that's being played here um, by Jack O'Halloran and Emil Muzz, I think is closer to the character that Richard Keel plays in Happy Gilmore, where he's, he does say quite a lot. Um, and we cut to robbery homicide, and this is where we find, we get the kind of the exposition out of the way. Joe Friday is the nephew of Joe Friday. And his partner, Frank Smith, has quit. Uh, apparently he has bought a goat farm. And, and there's like this little dialogue about how, because obviously he's informed by Harry Morgan that his partner has quit. But I do, I do, I mean, you know, obviously the, the names have been changed is probably the best joke in the film. But I do like this interaction where he's like, he won't be coming in today. And he says, 24 hour book. And he goes, or tomorrow. And he goes, 48 hour book. <laughs> um, and I do like Dan Aykroyd's kind of a very kind of deadpan delivery of that, like as if he hasn't kind of figured it out. But yeah, you know, he's retired. He's bought a goat farm and apparently that was his dream. So he's, you know, he's pursuing his dream. Uh, you know, there's nothing really that uh, Joe Friday can say about that. One thing that I wrote down about the beginning of the film is uh, when we when they first show us Aykroyd, it's this long series of him walking across streets and upstairs going into the police office. And like, you know, how like some actors have really authoritative walks and you're like, damn, that, that wow, the purpose. It's like Aykroyd has like one of the worst cinematic walks I've ever seen. He, he just he looks like a dentist who's late to getting to the office or something. He just like waddles. I noticed that. I was wondering if it was a character choice or, or what because he was very stiff. Like he, he didn't like move his arms. I I had noticed that. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it did to, to me. It felt like it was a little bit of a choice, but also the fact that Dan Aykroyd probably doesn't know how to walk on screen. Um, you know. Which I'm uh, thinking back to the films I've seen him in. I don't recall him doing a lot of walking. So. Yeah, I do. Uh, it did come across as intentional for me, just because like the Joe Friday character in this movie, I find so interesting in that he is the experienced guy of the group, but he also feels the most out of place uh, in that he, he's trying to re- emulate the values of his uncle in a time where maybe that feels a little bit less out of fashion. So I do wonder if every aspect of him is like all the more emphasizing how despite being our central character and despite being sort of the driving force, he is maybe a little bit less uh, in sync with what's going on around him. It feels like. Yeah. I mean, he does, he does, um, 
he does wear a hat, which in the 80s, wearing a hat, just it does make him look like just that one detail just makes him look completely um, like out of place. Um, so, yeah, there is I guess there is that kind of thing. And uh, this is where we get to meet um, the most ridiculous character name that Tom Hanks will ever have in his entire career. And it is <laughs> Pep Strebeck. Um, and like they never established that Pep is a nickname. Like his name is Pep. Like who in? I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense because if you're thinking his character is roughly kind of like the same age as Hanks, which is about like twenty nine thirty at this particular point, then he was born kind of in the late sixties, and so maybe his parents were hippies and they called him Pep, and that's his name. But still, Pep Strebeck is. I mean, uh, so many. I just such a. I mean, that's the one thing that where in this film it kind of like when people start calling him Pep or he keeps being called Strebeck. I'm like, this just sounds so ridiculous. Like the fact, the fact that that's like, I just it's it's a hard name to kind of get over. Like you know, Tom Especially tries his for best. a cop. Yeah, like yeah, maybe a race car driver. <laughs> if they said his name was like you know John Pep Strebeck, I'm like okay, so he's got a nickname because there's tons of people called John. But no, he's just called Pep Strebeck. Um, and it is one of the many odd names in this film. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who've got weird kind of surnames going on, which we'll get to as we reach them. But yeah, uh, we meet him. He's undercover. He's in this car that is kind of falling apart and he's got like, you know, a uh, five o'clock shadow and everything. And, you know, obviously Joe Friday is not happy about that. He starts quoting uniform regulations at him and, you know, what a detective should wear. And then they very quickly like get cleaned up <laughs> and, and it's it's just done as like a, a quick transition shot they're like he's there he is undercover and then all of a sudden he's in a suit again and he's shaved and everything and it, it's so weird that they did that because i mean I, obviously they're doing it so that um you know dan Aykroyd gets to do his thing where he kind of just lists regulations which is obviously a character trait that they've, they've given him for this film um but it's just like if you're going to clean him up in three seconds why bother bringing him in undercover and with a beard like just just have him come in as Tom Hanks, you know, looking normal. Um, but yeah, they, they they kind of... And they find out that they've... they've at the zoo, there's been three pagan cards left. And, uh, you know, they have to go to the zoo to find out what's what's going on with that. Um, so yeah, this is uh, this is Tom's entrance. Um, it's... I don't know if this is a spoiler, but it's one of the rare occasions where he's playing a Lothario. And that is always weird based on the rest of his oeuvre yeah i mean in nothing in common he was which came out like the year before he was also playing a, another kind of like lothario but he's he's yeah. he's very self-assured he's already you know a, a really good actor i'm i had no problem with i bought him completely yeah it is i mean throughout the film he is with various different um you know uh, female members of the los angeles police force um at different times uh, something obviously that Friday will comment on, um, but yeah, and then like we go to the zoo, and again, I mean, there's a joke in here that I also really like. You know, they find out that the giant anaconda is missing. Um, you know, they find out that the fruit bat is missing, and then they go to the lion, and they find that the lion has a mohawk. And I, I, I kind of like how Dan Aykroyd is like disgusted by this, and he's like, you know, uh, what if you're a kid and this is the first time you've been to a zoo? You know, how would you explain that to the kids? And Tom Hanks, like, literally sees a bunch of kids and he yells over, kids, it'll grow back. And they all start cheering. <laughs> and oh, I was like, yay. yeah. It's maybe my favorite joke in the movie. Like, all the kids just like, immediately 
up on that. There's no no weirdness to them at all of Tom Hanks saying, it'll grow back. And he just looks back at Dan Aykroyd, very satisfied with what he's just done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, but I do like the fact that he phrases like, "How would you explain that to the kids?" And he literally explains it, and they all start cheering. And I just thought that was such a yeah, it's a nice quick gag. Um, but obviously, you know, we're we're gradually kind of like building up to to kind of what is going on. You know, we've seen the fire, which they then have to investigate next by going to Jerry Caesar's mansion, um, played by Dabney Coleman, with this very odd Southern lisp, and. Um, now the the thing about this, like obviously, you know, Jerry Caesar is meant to be a. I think it's actually like a facsimile of like the three main guys who had uh, what I believe people call skin magazines in America, because um, it's not comp- like the mansion is kind of Hugh Hefner, but the way he behaves is kind of a bit more like Larry Flint. Like so, there's a there's a kind of combination, and the guy who who did the other magazine, which I can't remember, which I can't remember the name of the creator of that, but he was also very kind of like, I, I don't know, it's just he's kind of combining the the kind of the sleaze of Larry Flint with the the mansion of of um, of Hugh Hefner. Hefner, yeah, yeah, um, and they they're greeted by April, which leads to a, a, a wonderful misunderstanding where, um, you know. Dan Aykroyd thinks that that was when she was a bait mate, which is, I don't know, that's a title anybody would want. Um, but uh, <laughs> apparently, no, her name is April. She was the February bait mate. Um, and what I like is how Pep Strebeck is a huge, like he's got, he like literally knows everything about her from her like profile. And he's kind of listing off the stuff that she likes. And uh, one of them is The Sound of Music, uh, which obviously is unusual because uh, within this universe, Christopher Plummer is actually playing a character. So, um, wow. Oh, that never occurred to me. Oh, yeah. So I think I think they threw that reference in just as like a little bit of an in-joke because uh, that feels like something Dan Aykroyd would put into a script. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so he's he's she's going to take them to meet Jerry Caesar, who is, um, you know, the proprietor of this magazine. He is surrounded by bait mates everywhere. There is nothing but women in uh in bikinis uh there's a couple surrounding him obviously he's you know he called he says he called the police three hours ago um and i like how dan Dan Aykroyd is like you know he wants to do his job like i i think this scene's quite interesting because you have this kind of balance where you know joe friday is you know a by the book cop and he wants to do the job and investigate the crimes but then he also on a very personal and visceral level just hates everything (laughs) that's going on in this mansion and and so, like, he's he's constantly, like, monologuing about, like, you know, uh, whether or not he's going to investigate the crime and all that kind of stuff. And, and there's a point where he kind of talks about how, you know, he doesn't really care that all those magazines have been burned. And he said, you know, it's slime versus slime. And just, like, kind of how disgusted he is with everything is quite funny. Um, and and then, you know, they are, they are approached after um, Jerry leaves uh, by Sylvia Whist. Uh, who was the first bait mate, because this is the 25th anniversary of bait coming up. Um, and she opens her robe and says, uh, did, would you say that these look like the breasts of a 43-year-old woman? And obviously Dan Aykroyd plays it as like, he, like as if he doesn't want to look, but he has to look because she's asked a question. Um, and yeah, and you know, he, he kind of says that they're spectacular, which is, is quite fun. And I like the kind of, straight away Pep is like willing to leave them alone. But then he, you know, when he says, I've, my, my, I've left my notebook in my car, that he goes, let's go find the notebook. <laughs> like he, he leaves, he leaves uh, Sylvia Whist. 
<laughs> it's a scene I didn't remember as a kid. I like I said, I I'm almost certain they probably like cut down on it. Maybe like cut out that gag or something because I probably watched this movie on basic cable as a kid. Because uh, a lot of there was uh, you know a lot of gags like that that I didn't remember. But um, I mean, if anything, at least gives us like I think a good insight into Joe's character. Uh, it's just more of the same with uh, Pep throughout the whole thing with <laughs> knowing all the ladies. Uh, that they come across and like remembering all of their uh, uh, stats and stuff from every magazine is actually a little funny, I guess. But uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't feel particularly strong on this certain scene. Also, Jerry has got the pagan manifesto, um, which they want him to right. publish. So this is kind of, I mean, th this kind of gets dropped. Like after this scene, we don't really hear more about the pagan manifesto. <laughs> Um, but there is a there's a funny line where Tom Hanks reads from it and he says that, you know, bad sex uh, is a cornerstone of society. And that's what they want. They want to kind of promote bad sex oh, by banning ba pornography. Bad, bad sex and good drugs. <laughs> yeah. I believe that that's what they say. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's funny because obviously, you know, uh, in terms of like the plot, you know, Jerry Caesar is kind of like a side villain. Um, but I think he's he's obviously positioned as being somebody who, you know, people would be outraged about. Um, and I do like that he kind of gives the, the kind of the cliched line about Playboy and people reading it for the articles. And he's, and he's obviously in response to Joe Friday. He says, you know, some intellectuals consider it to be like a radical political, um, you know, publishing kind of tool and stuff. And it's like, well, I, you know, that is kind of a little bit of what Hugh Hefner kind of claimed in the 60s. So, um but yeah, um, they go and get f food, and this is where we get like one of the other kind of character traits of Joe Friday, um, which is uh, which I think is an interesting contrast be contrast between the two of the, the characters because Pep is having like a very nice looking salad, um, but Joe Friday decides to have two chili dogs covered in God knows what the looks. He seems to have had like everything put on them, um, and you know this is kind of where we get. Um, Pep kind of lecturing him and saying, you know, you don't know what can fill in, fall into like the machinery and talking about like nitrates and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and of course, Joe Friday is like, look, leave me to eat my chili dogs, man. You're like, it's like, I just want to eat some food. Um, and this then also kind of while they're eating, um, two guys just kind of jump into their police car <laughs> and steal it. Um, and another recurring gag like throughout this film is the different cars that they get um assigned to them from the motor pool as as the kind of the show goes on like each each like time they get their car taken they get a worse car as like a replacement <laughs> um and so you know they they find out um from their captain that some chemicals have been taken and then they're gonna go to the docks uh to take a look at those chemicals and obviously the pagans have left their cards there uh so once again we're getting a, another kind of uh part of the motivation in terms of, you know, what the pagans are trying to do. Um, we'll find out later why they've stolen those chemicals. But I do like that when, when the guy at the dock kind of gives them a list of what the chemicals are, which is only two chemicals, but he keeps he keeps naming the, the second one and saying that it's like a... I can't remember what he says now, like a pseudo something. And every single time Friday repeats that later on, he keeps saying the exact same thing um, and repeating it. So, uh, again, it kind of gives us a little bit of an insight into, into what how Friday thinks. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of like the, the crime that's going on is it's kind of really odd that there's like just little bits and pieces that we're gradually getting introduced to, um, you know, as the film 
goes on, you know, the burning of the the pagan stuff, the missing animals, and now these chemicals. Um, so obviously it's kind of gradually being built up um, for us to kind of figure out. And then this is when we get Christopher Plummer. He is on television, uh, which is apparently at like a newsstand. There's just like a TV there, um, which I thought was a bit odd. Um, but, you know, he's <laughs> on that. TV. You'll, you'll see that nowadays, but I didn't know back in the 80s you would see a TV there. Yeah. Little news, at least here in Philly, like little newsstands love like little, like little, like little itty bitty. Uh, uh, so, some of them do anyway, have like little itty bitty like flat screens. But like, I'm trying to think back in the 80s, how the hell did you fit a CRT TV in one? Yeah. I guess it was just like a bit of tiny little portable. Um, but I just thought it was an unusual detail to have like a TV at a newsstand. Um, and on there we have the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Worley. Wiley? It's an odd name. Worley, um, I and think, right? Yeah. Worley, yeah. And he's talking to Commissioner Jane Kirkpatrick, uh, who's like the police commissioner. And they're on his show and they're talking about MAMA, uh, which is, um, I can't remember what the acronym stands for now. Yeah. It's like the, yeah, so they are, you know, they've got this thing called MAMA, uh, which is about uh, moral Americans or something. I can't, I can never remember the full uh, thing, but apparently they're in Los Angeles because that is where pornography is, and they're going to crack down on pornography. Yeah, and uh, uh, Plummer, just like Dabney Coleman, is making a strong vocal choice in this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for the for the when he's when he's like the reverend, he he it seems like that's an act deliberately for the cameras to me. Right. Uh, but yeah, he make he deliberately has like kind of does these these weird little laughs, um, like kind of little giggles uh, while he's talking. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Christopher Plummer, a great actor. I don't feel like we have to kind of say that, but, uh, kind of in this, like in this dual role of like, you know, the kind of the reverend, you know, as he presents himself to most people. And then obviously later on, we'll find he has a, a second kind of persona. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun that would like the choices that he has, uh, has kind of made, um, in this film, obviously at this point, um, you know, if you're if you're watching this film for the first time, you'd be like, why on earth are we watching these two people on a TV talking about this? Um, but obviously uh, that will tie in very soon. Uh, we They get called to a motel where Enid Borden is not very happy about what Emil Muzz has done <laughs> to the room. He's skipped out owing money. He there's a bunch of pagan cars that were left there and. This actress, uh, Kathleen Freeman, she just basically spends like two minutes swearing up a storm, <laughs> calling Emil Muzz all kinds of things, and then eventually referring at one point to Joe Friday as a jizz bucket. <laughs> and I mean, I don't. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, Tim, I can see you laughing. Do you want to discuss Enid Borden? And her oh, she she might be my favorite character in the movie. Like her entire scene is just hilarious. The the words that she gets to say. Um, and, and it was great to see her squaring off with Aykroyd again after she played the, the nun in Blues Brothers. Um, oh, yes. Oh, that's yeah. right. Sort of brought them back together. <laughs> <laughs> She's terrific in this. Yeah, and she just, she like, she keeps swearing about, like, how much she hates Muzz, and then, she, like, when they question, when, when they're like, don't swear at us, she just kind of, she does moderate it a little bit, but then she still starts swearing about Muzz again, uh, which I just thought was quite funny. Uh, but, yeah, so, you know, um, and this is when, I, for some reason, and I don't know why, 
because uh, she says, you know, she just threw everything out in the garbage. And they see, like, this garbage truck turn up. And they're like, didn't she say she threw stuff out in the garbage? And so they decide to, like, follow the garbage truck. And then they, like, sit at a desk in, like, a park. Um, which I thought was a bit odd, going through all this garbage. And obviously Pep is not happy with that, but, like, Joe is, you know, trying to find something that will lead them to uh, to Muzz. And i got to be say, i got to say, like, you know, the easiest thing to do probably wouldn't be to go through garbage, but they end up with a phone number that leads them to call um, Caesar's mansion again. And then they, you know, that person there says that he is driving the limo for Caesar, who's out on his boat. Um and so, obviously, they go over to the doctor f- to find him. And then this leads to one of the oddest things in this film. I mean, you know, there are a number of odd things. But when the limo drives over Dan Aykroyd's feet, he just kind of makes this, like, kind of... he's He just opens his mouth really wide and, and doesn't say anything. He just makes this kind of, like, pained expression. And it's such his a... eyes and... Yeah! And <laughs> I, it just gets really cartoony for, like, one second. And I'm like, what is... What is this? Like, you know, you know, I was trying to think of why, like, why is a kid? Why would I like this movie? And then when like I came across a gag like that, I'm like, oh, now I know there's like like goofy (laughs) goofy jokes in it like that, that like would entertain a 10 year old. Wow. (laughs) Thank you, Keith, for bringing up that the image (laughs) (laughs) as his background. Oh, that is such an Ackroyd moment. Yeah, and I, what what I find funny is they both kind of say to Muzz, you know, um, you you've kind of like you know run out on this motel and left them owing money, and they're like, and he just he just basically says, you know, up yours, and just drives off, and it's, it's like it's like okay, I guess that's the kind of character he is. He doesn't really you know care about like the police or whatever, um, and you know we get a car chase uh, earlier in the film. Friday had drove below the limit. Very slowly in traffic, and that was kind of like establishing, you know, this gag that he's a slow driver. And so, obviously, you know, now that his feet have been driven over, he's not going to do the driving, and instead, Pep does it. And uh, there is, I guess, I guess this is like a kind of funny joke where, as they're in this car chase, uh, Friday keeps reading off a list of like violations, and you know, obviously, you know, Pep says, Oh, that's quite a lot of stuff that you know, obviously, Muzz is doing. And Friday's like, no, that's you. <laughs> um, and he, and he and he's got it in his little notebook, and he goes, you know, I could like throw the book at you. And he goes, oh, that's a good idea. And he just literally throws his his notebook out the window so that the list of violations no longer exists, which is just such a weird kind of thing to do. Um, and there is a there is a, a thing where they kind of drive through some boxes and and they say, look out, Muppets, which is just like uh, kind of out of nowhere. I was like, oh, that's a weird thing for them to say about a bunch of like you know stuffed toys yeah Um, yeah he says like look out muppets is that what he says i wasn't quite sure yeah i think i did spot a couple of muppet characters in the the stuffed animal that they were driving through it's very weird okay the one that gets stuck to the car doesn't isn't a recognizable character it's just a stuffed animal so yeah Yeah, it's just like a dog or something weird yeah um and then this is where the you know they end up on the beach in fact i would say this the stunt driving on the beach is really like they're driving through water and it's like being thrown up around the cars and stuff, and that's quite—it's quite impressive that they managed to kind of, um, you know, get some kind of, you know, the water kind of flowing up around the cars. It looked, you know, I thought it looked quite good. Um, and of course, they both crash into the lifeguard stand. Um, for some reason, Muzz decides to go up the ramp. I don't know what he, where he thought he was going. Um, <laughs> and then, like, it's just such a weird choice. And then Pep drives the car underneath. 
um, and they're there, and then this is where they, you know, they start to read him his uh, his rights. I think the big thing about just to like center in Darren on the bit you had about uh, Hanks and Aykroyd uh, and their interplay in the car. I feel like when, watching the movie, um, that was the thing that really resonated resonated with me the strongest was just the dynamic from the two of them. The actual action, maybe the the crime element of the film itself, I thought was perhaps a little bit boilerplate at times. But going into this movie, you know, knowing this is an early Hanks feature and having known Dan Aykroyd as being established in SNL almost 15 years prior by this point, uh, it is kind of odd to think that they're only like four years apart in age. Like they kind of read as being almost <laughs> different generationally to me uh, when I was going into the film. So. I think uh, part of what I like about their dynamic is perhaps as a result of them actually being closer contemporaries is how much Pep is like very much not deferential to Friday, like how he is very much his own guy and intelligent in his own ways. Uh, he's not like the naive new recruit and he's not um, kind of bowled over by him. He's like, oh, yeah, no, you're a little bit too square. Like you talk about... Um, you know, wasting taxpayer dollars, but you're actually causing a lot of dismay by going slower in the speed limit. And oh, I'll just throw, <laughs> yeah. I'll throw the notebook out the window now that you mentioned it. So anyway, on with the chase. Uh, so I like that aspect of the film as it was going on, but the action I maybe was less um, interested in, I suppose, though it is impressive what they accomplish, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get, you know, the reason why everyone says a cap. Uh, which is the interrogation scene with Muzz, um, where you know he's he's he doesn't want to talk because obviously he he wants his lawyer, and um, they do this kind. Of, it's not like a good cop bad cop bit, but they do this kind of thing where obviously um, Friday leaves to go and get like some some food and some drinks, and when he's out of the room, I mean it can only be described as police brutality is committed on him. Um, and his testicles by Pep Streetbeck. <laughs> yeah, and the really weird part is that uh, they cut to outside the interrogation room, and um, Aykroyd's character Friday kind of smirks like he knows what's going on in there, and it's like, you're supposed to be the rule follower who's like... Uh, and <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very weird. Absolutely. Although, in all fairness, um, in probably, I mean, in a post-COVID world, the most disgusting thing in the film... Um, you know, Emil Muzz does spit on him, so maybe fr maybe Friday's just angry and he, he's willing to, you know, kind of break the rules a little bit for that. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, uh, some kind of information is coerced out of Muzz, and then when when he when he goes back in, when Friday re-enters re the room, um, you know, Pep says, you know what would go nice with these? Some donuts. <laughs> and so he leaves the room again, and... You know, they get the location for where the kind of pagan uh, meeting is going to take place. And, you know, they they are then authorized to go undercover. Um, and I think this part of the film is probably the part that a lot of people like remember from this film. Uh, Absolutely. Which is, yeah. Yeah. Which is when they're undercover and um, Dan Aykroyd is dressed like some kind of um, punk, I think. I think he's got like a. Um, a patch of black flag on the back of his jacket along with like a union jack um, yeah, i think he's got like all kinds of uh buttons and pins on it and he's got like a really yeah. weird uh mohawk wig that is like blonde on the sides and long <laughs> but also a mohawk on the top and bright red yeah it's weirdly so, and, you know it's like weirdly 70s it, i don't know Aykroyd has always seemed a little bit out of step with whatever time he was in 
Yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess the kind of the joke is that basically what you're taking is you're taking it that Joe Friday has like the values of his uncle, which is from the 50s. So but that would have gone on into the 70s in terms of when he was like, you know, a cop or whatever. And so obviously going undercover in the 70s, you know, like a 50s kind of, you know, uh, detective in a suit would look ridiculous trying to be a punk and I think that's kind of what they're going for mm-hmm. um, although it is worth saying that you know Dan Aykroyd was pushing for this film to be made for about 10 years <laughs> so oh, wow. uh, so I don't know if like the the kind of cop thing you know um, the punk thing was like more contemporary when the script was originally written mm-hmm. um, and I don't understand what Pep Strebeck is what's got going on he seems to just be wearing a hairnet and like a fake mustache and that seems to be as much effort as he's gone to um and I don't know why he's wearing a hairnet. I don't understand that at all. I've never, I, I don't understand why that is undercover. Um, like, I, I guess he's keeping his hair down because his hair is extremely recognizable in this film. But um, I don't know. It's just a weird choice. Um, just for, for for that to be like an undercover thing is like here's wear a hairnet. Maybe his undercover persona is uh, on break from working at a restaurant. <laughs> that yeah, I guess if anybody asks, he can, he can say he's got to get back. <laughs> yes i've always thought it's a weird choice though um and as they go to the location for their stakeout uh which in all fairness does it never is a stakeout <laughs> it ends it, it completely t- changes into like an undercover mission um they get pulled over by chips and these like they see that they have like emil muzz's identification in their car and so they're like oh you know they're pagans like us um, and obviously, you know, the, the fact that their car was stolen early and now play comes into play because basically cars all over the city have been stolen, um, in particular police cars uh, by the pagans. Um, and then there's this weird gag where like they like they start laughing and then they kind of keep laughing. And then, you know, Tom Hanks kind of as they as they drive off, does it like as the chips kind of drive away, Tom Hanks does like one of his kind of like trademark kind of ha like to finish the lapping and it's just like a really weird choice that like from this point on whenever they encounter other pagans they start laughing as if that's a thing that the pagans do but it was just because there was like a shared joke between them and and these other officers so uh, well i say officers they're obviously you know they're just pagans pretending to be police officers but it's just such a weird kind of gag that they do that as they enter the event like tom hanks is like yeah we're pagans and then he starts laughing again for no reason nobody else is laughing (laughs) Uh, so yeah it's just a, it's a weird kind of joke and then obviously to top off the fact that they are in ridiculous undercover clothing uh, the pagans pass out goat leggings for everyone to wear um, and Tom Hanks does this little bit where he's got like the two goat leggings as if they're like dogs that are like attacking each other and he just kind of does some like growling as it, and it, I don't know it's just a weird little moment that he does before he kind of puts the leggings on well I remember the one thing that stuck out to me was the guy in the goat head coming around with the pills uh, and is like yeah. <laughs> just like take whatever you want they're all unlabeled uh so it's it's a wonder that anyone there has any idea what's going on <laughs> yeah i mean you know that was just the 80s whenever you went to a party everyone would just have a bunch of pills unlabeled nobody... pills in a, in a, yeah, in a just huge container kind of... yeah they didn't even they didn't even know they were filming at that point <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was just on set that's what it was that, like that guy works you know. for craft services <laughs> the really interesting thing about yeah. these pills is that uh they they look like gelatin capsules, but as we'll find out soon in the movie, uh, they're waterproof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's funny actually because like it seems like a minor detail where Pep is just like grabbing like a handful, <laughs> he just puts them in his pocket. Uh, but obviously that you know that will come back later, as Tim says. Um, 
And, you know, everyone is wearing goat heads. Uh, they've all got the goat leggings on. Uh, there's a lot of goat heads kind of on sticks and stuff. And there has been this kind of pool set up for a sacrifice. And we have the high priest above it um, who is, you know, uh, going to make this sacrifice. Um, we see the bat, uh, which Friday points out. Uh, we see the lion's mane, which is, you know, these are things that are, bit, are kind of thrown into the pool for the sacrifice. And then they bring out the virgin, um, which is uh, played by Alexandra Paul, who I think later on would end up on Baywatch. Um, and she is the virgin Connie Swale. And I say those four words because that is how she's referred to for a large well, percentage of this film. I is that. I hate yeah. it. <laughs> it, is, it, it is basically... A setup for the fight for the final joke of the film. That's all it is. Exactly. I. But an hour, an hour of constant setup for one very weak joke. Yeah. Uh, uh, So you know, Connie Swell comes out. She's in the wedding dress that was stolen from the landlady, um, and then she gets kind of thrown into this pool, um, where we see that there is the snake that was stolen uh, also from the zoo. Um, and everybody, st- but before that happens, I should say everybody starts doing this dance, and and this is where Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks start imitating this goat dance that everyone is doing, um, and that will come back later. But yeah, like it's just this really. I mean, I like I understand kind of what the pagans are meant to be because they are the people against goodness and normalcy, which is pagan, uh, as we find out here, and. But it's like, well, why Why is there, like, this kind of weird ritual sacrifice going on with, like, these animals and this high priest if all they want to do is, uh, like, burn down, like, pornographers, like, factories or what? Like, it just, uh, like, the, the whole thing feels a little muddled in terms of what they're trying to do. Um, but, some yeah. Mixed, um, some mixed messaging with their... Uh... Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're taking a bunch of drugs and, and doing a goat dance. and They need to, they need to rewrite that manifesto. To make it a bit more clear, so I understand what is going on. Obviously, I think in reality they are kind of just a distraction. Um, but just the fact that they went to the trouble of breaking into the zoo to steal that stuff. Um, if I was one of those kind of henchmen who were to do that, and I found out this was all merely a distraction, I'd be very annoyed. I'd be like, I went to the trouble of <laughs> shaving a, a lion, which is a very dangerous thing to do. So, um, you know, I would think it, 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 like it means something. Um, uh, I like that, you know, obviously as as um, the Virgin Connie Swell is drowning um, in this, this pool with the snake, um, uh, both of them obviously, being police officers, you know, they have to go and go and rescue her. And so uh, they both jump in um, and, you know, the, the snake starts to kind of constrict around them. Um, and then the snake just dies because I'm guessing that snake is not meant to be in water. I'm not sure what happens there. Um, and at this point, obviously, uh, you know, the, as police officers, they need to get out. Um, and I do like that Friday starts like reading all of these people their rights. <laughs> he doesn't realize that he's outnumbered for some reason. And, uh, you know, to kind of get out of there, Pep just fires his gun in the air and that leads to everyone scattering. And at that moment, the high priest mask falls off and we see that it is dun 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 Reverend Jonathan Wiley. Wow. Um, yeah, who would have guessed that the priest was the bad guy? Oh, I was just going to say, I think Pep murdered the boa constrictor with a handful of pills. Yep. Oh, yes. Sorry, I missed. Yeah, I missed that. Um, I, re- I remembered like this, they started constricting, didn't they? And and then, yeah, there's a bit of a, uh, yeah. He shoves uh, all the pills in its mouth. The, the water. Very fast the acting pills. pills. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that instantly kill snakes. Um, 
uh, but yeah, so I mean, I th- I think that actually this reveal is like so early in the film. It's kind of interesting because you, you know normally you would expect to keep this until like a lot later in the film, but I think the they treat it as the motivation for later on. You know, Friday obviously um, will attempt to arrest um, the, the Reverend and get into trouble, and so that kind of you know that's the end of the kind of like second act. So. I think they have to reveal it a little bit earlier for it to kind of make sense. Yeah, this um, this entire scene with the sacrifice and the whole setup and his reveal, it felt so much like a huge event in the movie that I almost, I had to check the time because I was like, are we into the end? And I was like, no, we're like <laughs> one third of the way through this movie. Oh man, yeah. I, was checking, I was checking the times way too often and I was like, why is this movie? Isn't it like, it's like an hour 40 or something, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It especially it kind of reminded me a little bit of like Witness, which obviously came out like two years before this, where we see Danny Glover kill someone in the opening and the kid sees it, but then he doesn't communicate that to Harrison Ford until much later when it's silently in the police station, they kind of understand the gravity of it. It's obviously structurally a lot different where both these scenes are placed in the film, but I was like, Oh, I'm kind of an interesting uh sync up in terms of internal reveals. You know, they they get their car, which was stolen, and they escape back, and they they kind of call Captain Gannon, like, you know, at at five in the morning, and they go into the office, and they start doing the goat dance, and I like that they do the goat dance while Dan Aykroyd does, like, a voiceover saying what they did, like, saying that they called the captain, and then he says, and we recreated the dance for him while they're doing it, and then he kind of tells them to stop, because, like, you know, it's getting annoying, and then when um, when Tom Hanks goes to take out the location of where this happened, he then spills a bunch of drugs all over the uh, the desk, um, obviously leading the captain to think that they're um, both on something. Um, Here, I had a question for all of you based no, on this. Did anyone find Harry Morgan's reaction to this kind of odd? Because I understand that they Tom Hanks and Dakar come in dressed very oddly and they have the pills and it's five in the morning. But like, they were officially sanctioned to do undercover work and they're reporting back what they found. And Harry Morgan reacts as if it's not only the strangest thing ever, but that these guys are now on thin ice for reporting back in this way. And I felt like there was something missing there on why he wouldn't give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, especially since it feels like Joe Friday up to this point is seen as a relatively respected cop. I mean, I assume that there's a bit of a... He's got a chip on his shoulder trying to emulate his uncle in some way, who this guy worked with um, previously. But there was just something about this that I felt like it's obviously setting up what happens later when he tries to arrest Christopher Plummer and he's officially taken off the force. But I didn't quite understand um, this point in the movie, how they got uh, rebuked in such a manner. And I don't know if anyone else got that or felt similar issues with it. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I'm glad you said it because I actually had been thinking that while watching it. I, I expressly that thinking, oh, well, it's Joe Friday, and he always like seems very trustworthy to everyone else on the force. So like, why why doesn't he believe him? Yeah. I mean, it almost feels as if he's in on the conspiracy, and that, and <laughs> dun, you're dun, like, dun. oh, is is how is Harry Morgan working with the pagans? Like that's what it feels like. It feels like maybe that might have been of an earlier kind of a draft or something where maybe he was in on it, and that's why he's trying to dismiss it so quickly right, but especially, he's just a dumbass um, yeah especially when we find out that he's real chummy with both Worley and the commissioner and the commissioner is in on it with Worley so yeah he's in bed with the two of them but he just he's still an honest guy he just wasn't able to catch was under his nose this whole time 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, the, well, the, also the really strange thing about that is if he had just believed them and been like, oh my God, let's go check it out, then they still could have had the next scene we get where there's nothing there. Yeah, and, and that, yeah. You know, it up. Exactly. This episode continues in part two, releasing tomorrow. I like to do things my way. Don't forget, my name is Friday. I'm the man of the hour. The power of power. I'm the arm of the law. The very last draw. I'm on the side of the right. I'm taking right now. If you get me up tight, I'm right beside you. I'm as strong as the army. Never can hurt me. Coming down with that hammer. You're ready for a 